Hoarding disorder is a real experience that goes beyond the sensational scenes on TV shows like Hoarders. What are the risks associated with hoarding, and how can you help a loved one with this disorder? Hello, and welcome back to Savvy Psychologist. I'm Dr. Jade Wu, and every week I'll help you meet life's challenges with evidence-based research, a sympathetic ear, and zero judgment. If you do a Google image search for hoarder, you get pages of horrifying images, some featuring people in full-body hazmat suits and face masks, all up to their hips and stuff. If you watch Hoarders, the TV show, you see dramatic shots of toxic hazards, distraught people with mascara running down their faces, and supposed treatment teams yelling profanities and threats at people. They seem like scenes from a horror movie. But what's actually behind these sensationalized scenes? What is hoarding disorder, and how does someone develop it? Do the tactics we see on reality TV really represent the best way to help a person with hoarding disorder? Well, this week I'm really thrilled because I spoke with Elaine Birchall, an expert on hoarding disorder with over 18 years of experience in this area. She's the founding force behind the Canadian National Hoarding Coalition, and she's the co-author, along with Suzanne Cronkreit, of Conquer the Clutter: Strategies to Identify. Manage and overcome hoarding. I'm really happy that she took the time to speak with us because she takes an evidence-based and compassionate look at why people hoard, and she is really good at explaining the risk pathways that can lead someone to cross the threshold between being cluttered to having a hoarding disorder. And she gives really in-depth advice on how to help a loved one to begin their journey of recovery from hoarding. So stick around and check out the interview. Hello, Elaine. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here. So you are an expert on hoarding, and hoarding has always been such an interesting topic for me. And to be honest, in all my years of、uh, you know grad school training and residency training, I haven't really come across a lot of hoarding cases in the settings where I've worked. And honestly, I haven't learned very much besides you know from case studies in in textbooks. So I'm really glad to be getting someone's perspective, you know, who's actually worked with a lot of patients and clients. So I'd love I, to be an ongoing、yeah. resource because the reason you haven't is that they haven't disclosed. Ashamed and and worried. Yeah, I do get the sense that hoarding has a big stigma attached to it. Is that right? It really does. Yeah, nobody's going to put their hand up,、um, even if they are wonderfully proficient in many other ways. It's a very shaming, judgment-loaded disorder to have. Yeah, yeah, it must be a very lonely existence to have. Absolutely,、hoarding. well, fearful too. Like you know, the,、mm. the television shows have been a mixed blessing because they've given people the、mm. language to identify what、mm. they're seeing and to call it the right thing, hoarding disorder. But they、mm-hmm. also specialize in good television, which is why I've turned down <laughs> a number of them. And you、yeah. would never treat people that way, ever, 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 ever. I- Yeah, I was curious about that because it seems very dramatized and very intense and not very compassionate at times. 
No, and not very effective either. You know, if you mm-hmm. if you shame people, really, you know, they can't make their best decisions. They can't make their best decisions, Jade. They're going to repeat the behavior. Yes, that makes so much sense. Well, we should probably back up a little bit for our listeners who are unfamiliar with hoarding. So could you just define for us what is hoarding disorder? So hoarding is in itself um, a persistent mental health disorder. It is a mental health disorder. And as such, it it is in the Diagnostic Manual of Mental Health Disorders, uh, version 5, so effective May 2013. Mm -hmm. When it became a discrete disorder in its own right, it now qualifies for human rights considerations as a disability if it sufficiently Mm -hmm. interferes with the functioning of a person's life. So, you know, residence, work, health, social, um, when enough of those areas of life have been impeded, um, negatively affected, it can be considered a disability and have the right to reasonable accommodation. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So I'm betting that a lot of people are wondering, you know, how do you come to have hoarding disorder? What are some of the risk factors and what are some of the proximal causes? So we don't know what causes hoarding disorder, that tipping point. But Mm -hmm. it's interesting that in 18 years, I have never had um, a situation where a hoarded situation was created and there weren't other factors as well. Uh, So in Mm -hmm. my experience, which is pretty extreme, it comes in combination. And because hoarding disorder is a discrete disorder in its own right, Mm -hmm. I started to think about it a while ago as almost like an opportunistic disorder, where if somebody Mm. has a vulnerability, and we'll talk about the risk factors if if we can in just a second, and they may not even know they have those vulnerabilities, all right, but then they become destabilized uh, with something else. It could be they lose a job, they they lose a, a loved one, they lose a pet, their health becomes compromised, um, they have another mental health or physical health situation that they're balancing, depression, anxiety, there's, there's quite a list. And that becomes destabilized and they had the vulnerability mm-hmm. risk factor for hoarding latent in the wings. Um, when a person becomes sufficiently overwhelmed, you know their executive functions, that part of the brain that helps them make the right. decisions they need to make. It's like walking mm-hmm. through mud up to your hips, and they just can't do it. And then the situation gets out of hand, and they cross a tipping point of safety, health, and being able to even manage not even improve and reclaim their space, just manage in the space. And mm, at that point, okay. you probably have a hoarding situation. Gotcha, gotcha. So it sounds like it's not quite enough to, say, be born with some sort of predisposition or higher risk factor, and it's not enough to 
just have a very stressful event, you kind of have to have the combination of those. Yeah, if you were to think of that as as a scale, you know, like a mm-hmm. um, not a scale you step on, but a balance scale, and you've mm-hmm. got this factor, you, you may have ADD or ADHD, you may have bipolar, you may have inherited you, or reactive depression, you may have mm-hmm. anything on the list. All right, and then mm-hmm. something happens, you discover, for instance, let's talk about those risk factors, they get loaded on the other side, and now you have a tipping Mm -hmm. point. So those risk factors would look like genetics. We know, depending Mm -hmm. on whose research you listen to, somewhere between 50 to 84% of individuals who who hoard have a first-degree family relative who hoards. That's a mother, father, sister, brother. All right, so it's close. Mm -hmm. We also know that there are three chromosomes with markers in common. Now, we don't know enough about that for it to be predictive. Um, So we could tell in advance, you're at a higher risk. And Johns Hopkins did an OCD collaborative genetic study that linked compulsive hoarding with chromosome 14. And so that then together with environmental factors. It could be a heavy loading for genetics, because I do see that. It isn't that you will inherit it, but you're at a higher risk if there is hoarding um, behavior. Mm -hmm. We'll just call it behavior, all right, in previous generations. And then think about the power of modeling behavior, modeling about hoarding beliefs, um, how to handle things, how to deal with loss, not being able, because you don't have it yourself or your parents didn't have it, to teach your children healthy boundaries and limits, strategies, effective strategies for dealing with loss and setbacks. Um, All of that is an extra loading factor on impressionable children. So children, whether they're adults, looking back on their life, having lived in a hoarded environment, that also can put people at risk because children can't reach their developmental milestones living in a hoarded environment. And they also, the number of them that come to me, Jade, and say, I know my parents love me, but I can't get past that fundamental belief that the stuff was more important than I was. So that's one, just one risk factor. If you're looking at the second risk factor, so I've kind of put these together into three paths. So that's path number one, the genetics. The second path is you have one of these high-risk comorbid factors. That's just a $5 word for some other issue (laughs) that is probably Uh a mental health disorder or it could be physical as well. I've seen this with the onset of MS and Parkinson's wow. where the cognitive impairment starts and they start to hoard. So we're looking at a long list of them. People, rather than go through that list right now, people can go on my website for more details, hoarding.ca. Okay. I have so many free resources there that are great information for them. But some of these other mental health disorders are very common. I mean, half the Western world has depression and anxiety, 
and for good reason. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you're looking at ADD, ADHD. There are two situations, though, where I have found hoarding situations um, developed. And when you looked at the person and you did really thorough assessment, you couldn't find those risk factors. And that is aging with mobility issues. A lot, mm-hmm. I find a lot of seniors call me because they realize that they're in trouble and they, they have waited too long, afraid to call in help in case someone decides they shouldn't be living on their own. And they can't manage the recycling, the garbage, just the mm-hmm. amount of unsolicited paper that comes into their lives. They can't stay right. on top of it. And so they end up in a pretty severely hoarded environment. The other thing is with recent grief where, you know, the estate is distributed and the person is actively grieving and they just, they don't want the stuff, they may not even like the stuff, but they're just not in a stage of grief where they can make decisions. Um, And sometimes, quite often, rather than put it in storage and wait for you know, the ebb and the flow of grief to proceed, they bring it home. They bring it home on top of all their other stuff. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I see that quite a bit. And I see it among people who make important decisions in every other aspect of their life. But it's hard to decide what part of mom and dad or grandma um, you want and don't want when you're missing so badly you ache. And that third path is, I think this is the riskiest path, actually, and I think not very many people are safe from it because it's part of the human condition. And that is when people or when we allow ourselves or we find ourselves persistently just a little disorganized. We don't have to be Mm -hmm. perfectly disorganized, right? But just a little chaos, just a little, and we're always having to fight to stay on top of it, and then something happens that destabilizes us. Generally, it's either one big issue mm-hmm. or a series of smaller ones, but the person can't restabilize in between, mm-hmm. so they get knocked down, they get partially up, another thing hits, they go down again. At a certain point, you know, that rule of three, you're on your knees, mm-hmm. and now you're so overwhelmed, you can't figure mm-hmm. out how to get up. So sort of going off of that last point there, which seems really scary and insidious because, you know, how does someone know that they've crossed the line between being cluttered and being disorganized to having a hoarding disorder? Absolutely. Always go back to the three criteria. Now, the the definition in the DSM-5 is like three and a half, four pages long. So I've abbreviated it for our purposes to three different criteria, and they 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 characterize the three and a half four pages. The first is that there must be what most people would describe as an excessive accumulation, and I say a failure to resolve that proportionately. Now that does not mean some trite thing like one thing in, one thing out. All right. Anybody who can mm-hmm. do the one thing in, one thing out at that point in time isn't at risk of hoarding disorder. Um, gotcha. It is that fundamentally they either haven't developed or it's broken. 
that check and balance system when you start to realize that you're losing control way before you go over the edge. But just, you know, the discomfort, the the confusion, the number of times, you know, you're running around looking for something and you find it and you put something down in a pile and then you look around and you're just not happy with it. If that's a persistent situation, then that's a risk factor. Um, That's one of the, the three criteria. So the second criteria is that some or all of the living spaces can't be used for their intended purpose. You're still living gotcha. in the environment, but, you know, you can't make meals at the stove, so you're ordering out. You have to move things in order to have a place to sit, and you're uh, bringing groceries home, but the fridge is full because you haven't cleaned it out. There is no space, and the cupboards mm-hmm. are chaotic. Um, you're still living there, but there's a price to pay, and the price to pay is in your functioning. The third criteria Mm -hmm. is that distress or impairment in functioning. So when we're talking about impairment in functioning, we're talking about risk factors, all right? Um, So that distress is either being experienced by the person themselves or others. What is really Mm -hmm. important about that criteria, that distress part, is that it doesn't have to be active, the client themselves who's hoarding may not be distressed, uh, but if those who had a right to know knew the true condition of the property, they would have cause to be concerned. That criteria has been met. So we're talking about your mortgage company, your insurance company, your neighbors who don't know they're at risk and don't know to take extra precautions fire department, children's services, animal control, bylaw. If you live in a multi-unit dwelling, your landlord, property uh, standards for multi-unit dwellings, if they knew the truth, they would have cause to be concerned. Then you have to Mm -hmm. take that box. So Mm -hmm. if you, even to a minimal degree, have to tick all three boxes, even a tiny bit, that's the answer of whether you are now over the line into hoarding. Gotcha. So those three, just to summarize for for our listeners, it sounds like um, the clutter and the hoarding has to be excessive by a reasonable person's judgment. It has to take up a lot of living space that prevents you from using those spaces for their intended purpose. And there has to be some sort of functional impairment or distress about it, whether from the person themselves or other people would be worried if they knew. That's true. That's exactly true. So then, you know, speaking of loved ones being worried, how can loved ones help someone with hoarding disorder? First of all, get good information. I would suggest that people go to my website, hoarding.ca. There's a free video there. Are you worried about someone's acquiring behavior? And it coaches people on how to uh, raise the issue with someone, kinds of things mm-hmm. to say and not say, how to keep the people your relationship with this person and the communication lines open, that first discussion is generally not 
the thing that will move the person forward to making change. So reconcile in your mind that this is going to be a series of discussions. No blame, no shame, no guilt. The person is probably already feeling that, even if they deny it. Mm -hmm. At all costs, short of enabling, keep the relationship Mm -hmm. on track and keep the lines of communication open. Some of the other things, if I could, I'll, I'll give you a list of don'ts. Sometimes that's helpful. Remember that it's about the person has to change their relationship to the things, not just clean up. If you just clean up, you'll be cleaning up forever. The second is focus on the person. How are they feeling? How did things get to this point? And don't don't always have an answer and a comeback because you're trying to herd them down a path. Walk with them along that path respectfully, listening, honestly listening to them. Don't go into this conversation with only one right answer, all right? And keep Mm -hmm. the discussion broad. Don't label them. You're a hoarder. That's not helpful. People are more than the labels that get applied to us. We are all more than that. Use their terms unless the term they use for what they do is demeaning and derogatory, in which case I would invite you to consider just saying something kind like, if you're doing it, you must be doing it for a reason that's good enough for you, but it's causing a problem. Don't confront denial. Just be quiet. All right, this is not a one-discussion solution. And mm-hmm. when, when you sense, when you know that your relationship is solid, because it probably won't be solid immediately after you raise the issue, there'll be a, a, a sense of threat or defensiveness. Mm-hmm. Okay, just stay focused on the person. You need to bring them through this, not get the house cleaned up. Right. We're not trying to win a battle, but rather to maintain this relationship and to cultivate this sense of empathy and safety. It's safety and respect. Respect. Mm, okay. If the person is doing something, it's, it's a reason good enough for them. And the fact is you can't make them do it. All right. You can't, you can do it. You can do it for them when they go out. You can walk in and you can do a shovel out and a major cleanup and your relationship is forever damaged. And people don't get over that. So anybody who's thinking about doing an intervention, you don't need to have an intervention. An intervention is a confrontation. All right. Hoarding is not an addiction. All right. So Mm -hmm. this is going to be a slower process than a 30-day program. Before you go into the discussion, talk out loud in front of the mirror and listen to the words you use. Mm. And if you received that kind of, even though you mean well, meaning well isn't enough. You can really damage somebody and hurt them forever by the judgmental language you inadvertently use. Language is powerful. Be kind, not right. Just don't enable. Don't ask a lot of rapid-fire questions. Once you've raised this issue, they're going to be going into either fight or flight because they know the truth at some level. 
Maybe they're not prepared to admit it because it's too embarrassing and shaming, all right? But remember remember this. Even though you don't approve of it, maybe it's dead wrong, maybe it's really unsafe, even a stop clock is right twice a day. So just because <laughs> this person has a, a situation, a negative situation that they've created, doesn't mean everything they think and feel and say is wrong. All right? Listen with respect. Don't play the role of expert and don't use guilt. All right? They are the only ones. When I go in to help somebody, Jade, they teach me who they are, what they need, and how I guide them out their own path. I need to understand what path got them in there so that I know that is the root I guide them out. I guide them. I don't do it for them. They're the ones who are doing the work. I'm coaching them and guiding them. This might be the next step. Try it and see if it's safe. This might be another step. Try it and see if it's safe. Mm -hmm. So don't expect to go in and convince them of something. And if they agree to an easy cleanup, you want to be very, very careful, all right, that... You don't just go in and summarily remove a lot of stuff just because you happen to be dealing with somebody who's compliant. Mm, that's really good advice. This is very interesting. And I, I like how you really have a focus in compassion and in learning about your clients more rather than going in as a whip cracker to sort of whip them into shape. And I really like this approach. That's that's just not very effective. Um, well, you so know, I wouldn't like somebody to do that with me. You want course, them to come out yeah. of this with respect, right? You want them to live differently, safely, because you care about them, or you're responsible mm-hmm. for them if you're a mental health professional, mm-hmm. right? And so, absolutely, they they have to feel that respect. They have to see it in your eyes, in the way you treat them, in the way you you let them make choices. And you respect those choices so long as that choice does not make a bigger problem. Like, for instance, if something is irretrievably contaminated and it's a risk, mold, for instance, mouse scabs, mm-hmm. um, you know, in among food, and they're walking in it and it's becoming airborne and they're breathing it in, they don't realize how toxic that is. There are some limits, but good information and respect for the person teaches you how to help them. I love that. Yeah. So my last question for you, Elaine, is, and I bet you get asked this pretty often, but um, Marie Kondo and her, the life-changing magic of tidying up has become hugely popular, especially now that there's a Netflix series. Is this something that could help people with hoarding? Or is this completely different from how you help folks? And how do you view this type of programming? So it's interesting that um, I don't take credit for this because good ideas just have a way of keep coming up, popping up, right? Mm-hmm. And so I do believe, like Marie Kondo, that we should first and foremost, not only, but first and foremost, have the things that give us joy and meaning. It isn't just about the thrill of joy, all right? And mm-hmm. meaning, our identity. They 
help us solidify our identity. They give us a sense of safety and respect and who we are and what we stand for. They define us in the ways that are important to us. But what I would like to say, because um, I've had an interesting experience with a, a poor client who couldn't even come home from the hospital because of the condition of her home. And when she said, no, Eileen, would you just go in with your crew, please? And I said, well, I need to talk to you before every time we go in to get permission to tell you what I think we're going to have to do and have your feedback. And she said, that's fine, that's fine. And the house was really a hazard. And we got to a point where we needed to start putting things away for her in a way that we could see made sense according to what was already partially done. And I had her permission to open a drawer, and I did. And it was her panty drawer. And I'd never seen this before, and they were all wonderfully organized, standing up on end, (laughs) all color-coded. And I looked and I thought, huh? Um, I guess my internal voice was, how long did that take? And so I spoke to her about it, and she said, yeah. She said, you know, I tried. I got the book. I tried. She said, because it just sounded so peaceful. And she said, and it was just another way for me to fail. And so one of the things for people who aren't at that point and won't be in the hospital and have to bump their head on the fact somebody else has to go through their things is that if somebody can establish, this is the key, if somebody can establish and maintain using the condo method, they are probably at that point in their life, maybe not forever, very low risk for hoarding disorder. However, if they can't maintain it, they might consider getting a copy of Conquer the Clutter because Sue and I wrote that book to fill the gap What do you do when you're in the trenches? You don't want to call for help Mm -hmm. because you don't want to raise the flag that this is your Mm -hmm. situation. Or you've tried and tried and tried and nothing has worked. That book is full of what my clients have taught me over 18 years. All right. Mm -hmm. Help them and didn't help them. And tools Mm -hmm. and resources to support each step along the way. So that you know what the problem is and you know what your piece of it is and you know how to fix it for yourself. So I would, I would encourage them to do that. Just use it as a coaching tool. And then when you get your environment sufficiently fixed up or the way you want it to be, um, maybe find somebody who can help you with the rest of the work that you need to do if it's too heavy. Um, And if all else fails, go to hoarding.ca, send me, use the contact us, send me a note, tell me what problem you're having, and I will do my level best to answer it in an email and, and just give you some ideas of what to do and where to go. That's fantastic. The book is such a 
great resource and your website as well, such a great resource. I'm really, really thankful that you and Suzanne wrote this book to to bring these strategies and bring these very hands-on but also very compassionate perspectives and strategies to people. Because I think you're you're right that hoarding is such a lonely, stigmatized condition that I bet most people don't know where to turn to get started. Among the stuff, you need to find your self-esteem and your self-respect, and you need to carry that mm. forward for the life you're meant to have. Well, thank you so much, Elaine. This has been such an enlightening conversation. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you for all the important work that you do. We really all appreciate it in the mental health community. Well, thank you for getting the message out. I really appreciate it, Jade. So we just heard from Elaine Birchall, hoarding disorder expert, and the real quick and dirty summary is that hoarding disorder is a persistent mental health disorder surrounded by a stigma that makes it really hard for people to seek and receive help. Elaine also explained that risk factors for developing hoarding disorder include genetics, a family history with hoarding, having a comorbid physical or mental health condition, aging, and destabilizing stressors. And importantly, she said that you can help a loved one with hoarding by starting a non-judgmental and non-directive, non-confrontational conversation, and ultimately a series of conversations where you help the person by walking with them and guiding them and helping them instead of by confronting them and just clearing their stuff out. We are so grateful to have had her join us, and I want to hear from you. Do you have any experiences with living someone with hoarding disorder, or perhaps you yourself have experienced this disorder? Or if you want to just have more information about other anxiety-related disorders, let me know. You can follow me on Twitter at QDTSavvyPsych or at JadeWooPhD. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and to the newsletter so you don't miss out on really useful tips and all the episodes of Savvy Psychologist. Savvy Psychologist is audio engineered by Steve Rickyberg and edited by Karen Hertzberg. As always, Savvy Psychologist is strictly for informational purposes and does not substitute for mental health care from a licensed professional. Thank you so much for listening again, and I will see you next week for a happier, healthier mind. Are you tired of the constant battle with anxiety and panic? I've got a podcast that I think you'll love. It's called the Anxiety Coaches Podcast, where the host, Gina, gives you your weekly dose of tranquility and inspiration. Two new episodes drop weekly, packed with practical tips and lifestyle changes to help you calm that racing heart and bring peace back into your life. So if you're ready to bid farewell to sleepless nights and constant worry, tune into the Anxiety Coaches Podcast and embark on a journey towards lasting calmness and a life free from anxiety's grip. Remember, it's not just a podcast, it's a lifeline. Join Gina on the Anxiety Coaches podcast and let her soothing words be the balm your nervous system needs. Listen in and start your path to healing today. The Anxiety Coaches because healing begins the first time you listen.